From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. So glad that you could join us today for Open Line Friday here on EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. Jack uh, Williams will be along in just a moment. I'm Tom Price getting things started here with our uh, Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. How are you? I am pretty good and raring to go. I'm glad that you are as we begin uh, the countdown to Holy Week. This is a pretty exciting time, uh, not just for us here at the network, but really uh, Christians all over the world. That's that's right. And and in many parishes, and, and this is permitted by the norms, have already started. They veiled the crucifixes and statues. Uh, which is the longer method of the uh, of the old practice of Passion Tide, uh-huh. and so you see that already happening in uh, many places, including here in our own diocese. I think in many of the parishes, and so that's a reminder that we're we are getting down to uh, when we give thanks uh, to God the Father for sending His Son and to the Son for coming and dying for us, and the Holy Spirit and leaving us the Church so that we can take this message of the gospel to the world. Uh, so it's a, a time of joy and gratitude, although it's preceded by the sorrow of the cross. Of course. And I want to put in a little plug, uh, uh, a very joyful plug, as far as I'm concerned. Very proud of everything that EWTN has done to bring wonderful uh, Holy Week, Triduum, Easter Sunday programming uh, to both radio and television. It's it's a it's a real blessing. And as we both know, because we go back into time immemorial here yes, at EWTN yes. in many ways, and, and uh, is that that was always center to mother, to that devotional oh, yeah. and that worship aspect of the, of the mission of the network, which is why we have the masses and devotions on at multiple times of the day and takes up a good part of the network. And, of course, we found over the years that that's a great help to the homebound. It was a great uh, help to people during the pandemic, which... Yep. God willing, we'll get over everywhere, as it seems to be here in Alabama for the most part. Hopefully so, and yeah. And we'll see, uh, uh, and we'll continue to provide those things. And that that's a, a, a core thing that we do as Catholics, and the principal thing, to worship the Father through Christ in the Spirit. And so we try to, to stimulate that by our, our liturgical and devotional activities. As we're just a couple of, couple of days away here from uh, Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week, uh, sometimes I think about a slogan that EWTN came up with some years ago, the week that changed the world. It's true. It is really true. Uh, it, you know, it really is. And uh, a number of centuries after that week, it was decided to anchor the calendar and so we have the year of the Lord, Anno Domini. We mm-hmm. have the year uh, before Christ, the uh, you know the B.C. in uh-huh. English. Yes. Uh, the world has dropped that because Christ has become a scandal to the world once again, as he was two thousand years ago. And so now we have the common era and the before the common era. Yeah. Yep. But as Catholics, as Christians of whatever uh, stream and tradition we are, uh, we should count time and revel in that week that changed the world and that the history of the world and even the calendar itself uh, 
turns on the life and ministry of Christ. Here's our phone number if you have a question for Colin Donovan. It is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial the U.S. country code. In most cases, that's going to be the number one. And then 205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for our response and then text us your first name and your brief question. Message and data rates may apply. Of course, you can always send us an email. The uh, email address, openline at EWTN.com, openline at EWTN.com. In the subject line, you want to put either Colin or Friday or Theology, and we'll uh, do a little mixing and matching here. I want to lead off with an interesting question I had never heard of or never even Mm -hmm. considered. This is from Lindy. Lindy says, is there a particular order in which the candles around the altar must be lit? Um, there, there isn't in the, I think, in the usual setting that we're, that we're aware of. Uh-huh. Uh, for the Advent wreath, of course, there is the order of the Sundays in which that, which that is done. You have the one candle representing the uh, Laetare Sunday. Uh-huh. Uh, and so you, you do them in a particular order there. But in terms of, of lighting the candles, it is certainly a practical matter. Uh, for most people, I, it might depend upon your handedness. If you're right-handed, <laughs> you may not want to be crossing over the fire and go from left to right. Ouch. Uh, or if you're left-handed, the other. So I think yeah. it's primarily a practical matter. It's not a normative matter, much less a dogmatic Very good. Little Lindy, thanks so much for your email. One from Zach, which comes up quite often. Matthew 23, verses 8 through 12, tells us we are to call no man on earth father. So why do Catholics call their leaders father. Well, uh, even St. Paul did that because he, he told them that you have one, you have 10,000 uh, teachers, but you have one father in Christ. And that's the spiritual understanding that um, in, according to nature, there is a particular kind of biological fatherhood, as there is biological motherhood. But for the Christian, we are concerned, we have heaven as our goal, there is a spiritual fatherhood and motherhood, and that is godparents uh, serve that purpose. The you know they're not clergy, but in a particular way, the clergy who introduce us to Christ and the sacraments through baptism and all of the others along the way, they hear our confessions, and so it's that spiritual fatherhood. Ultimately, as Paul tells us, all fatherhood is rooted in God, and we understand and know that. But Paul himself used that usage, calling himself the one father in the spiritual sense to this group. And so the, the church continues that, uh, that tradition. Uh, so there's nothing anti-scriptural in doing that. All right, very good. Tim says, I would like to join the church, but my wife will not. How should I proceed? We are both Lutheran. Well, obviously, she's a free agent. She has yeah. her own mind, uh, and but in, you have to respect her conscience where it's at now, and she should likewise respect your conscience. Uh, you will not answer before God for your moral decisions as in as a couple. You will answer as individuals, and you know be prepared to defend those. Mm. Uh, so I think 
if the truth has convinced you that you have to come into the church, then that is what God is asking you to do. And you, you ask for his grace. You pray for your wife that she will accept it, of course. Uh-huh. And naturally, you would hope that she herself would come in at some point. And, of course, that is indeed the experience of many couples who come in by the ones rather than by the pair. Sure. And so I think trust in God in that. Uh, uh, encourage her to accept your decision of conscience and accept hers and continue to pray and discuss uh, the faith with her as opportunity presents itself. And off you go. Tim, thanks so much uh, for your question. Bruce wants to know, and this is very interesting, how is the specific Eucharistic prayer chosen for Sunday Mass? Well, there are four options, and at some seasons there are other options you can take, like the prayers of reconciliation, uh, the the uh, canon dealing with reconciliation and so on. Mm-hmm. And so the priest has that option. Um, there is a preference in the Roman Rite that's been expressed in the documents for the first canon because that's the traditional Roman canon. Going back to at least Pope Gregory the Great in the six seven hundreds, and even perhaps in its seed in uh, back to Pope Leo around the year four hundred, so that has a sixteen hundred year history in the Church, and with different variations, permutations, additions, and changes, and all of that as sure. the world changes. Of course, time moves on. Uh, so that's sort of the principal historical prayer of the Church, and then the others are. Uh, clearly at the option uh, of the priest to take. Uh, there, I think there, you know, there are different reasons why they take them. Uh, some have uh, a particular preference, say, for Eucharistic Prayer 4, mm-hmm. which is sort of like the Eastern uh, canons of, of the Mass, the anaphore. Uh Or they might be in haste and they use number 2. Um, <laughs> so it, it depends on the situation, and that's up to the pastoral judgment of the priest there still remains that preference for Canon 1 in more solemn uh, celebrations, however. All right, very good. And we thank you very much uh, for your question there on um, the Eucharistic prayer. Bruce, appreciate your question. Uh, And now, if you would like to send us an email for a future show, we'd love to hear from you. Here's the address, openline at EWTN.com, openline at EWTN.com. We try to uh, tackle a couple of questions on each of our programs before we go to the phones or sometimes in the middle of the show. Uh, And then every so often, we'll do a mailbag program, get a whole bunch of questions answered on days like that. In a moment here, we're going to uh, talk with Andres in Chula Vista, California. If you've got a question for Colin Donovan regarding anything regarding uh, theology. Love to talk with you today as well. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan on EWTN. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Did you miss me? We certainly did. You don't come to Lent all your events. Well, we have, you. we have, you know, there. it's a big building. 
and when you got lost. When something goes wrong on the other side of the big building, it makes it difficult to get to the other side of the big building when you're supposed to be there. Well, then, uh, insofar as I can, ego te absolvo. Yeah, so, the, uh, <laughs> my thanks to Tom Price for st- sitting in at the beginning of the program. We'd love to hear from you, though. Uh, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Um, be sure to check out EWTN's Bookmark Brief with Doug Keck. It's kind of a shorter version. Um, gives you a little taste of what's coming up in the next episode of EWTN Bookmark. And you can even have those bookmark briefs sent straight to your email inbox. Simply log on to EWTN.com slash subscribe. To the phones we go. First up today is Andrus in Chula Vista, California, listening on the Google Home Appliance. Andres, you're on with Colin Donovan. A very good afternoon to everyone, and happy Easter to everyone likewise. Uh, I, need an analogy, I need an analogy to explain to a church leader that uh, the incarnation did not change God. You know, our immutable God does not mm-hmm. change, you know. But when he said that, you know, the uh, angel says, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, well, there is an implied change there. Now, I know there's a human nature and a divine nature that's hypostatically sure. united. Mm-hmm. They're still separate. But what would be a good analogy to show this union? Uh, could it be, I don't know, that God changing clothes, the clothes can change, but it's still God? I don't know. Sure. Could you please make yeah. a good down-to-earth analogy? Yeah. Um, well, uh, if my guardian angel will inspire me, maybe here I can do that. But l- let's start at the beginning, what we're talking about, the natures of things. You're, you're not Fulton Sheen, I'm just telling you. Yeah, okay, well, we'll say. Uh you know, the, the immutability of God has to do with the fact that his divine nature is in itself never changes. So there is nothing in the doctrine of the Incarnation which suggests that the divine nature changes. Um, in fact, if you, you can, whether it's the creed that we say routinely or whether it's the longer Athanasian creed, which is very starkly clear on this point, that there is no admixture of nature, there is no changing of nature, that uh, the divine nature doesn't become human, the human nature doesn't become divine. Uh, And, of course, in the Father's any divinization of human nature is is of grace, it's not of the actual nature of the thing. So the Church has never put forward the argument. Now, I suppose if one's waiting for analogy to demonstrate to somebody or to oneself, as the case may be, uh, that this is true, you'll be lost probably in finding an adequate one because this is a mystery that is beyond comprehension. Um, And so there's that element of it that has to be recognized immediately, at least for the believer. For the non-believer, you're trying trying to to convince. But I'm not sure that you can't cross over some lines if you make an analogy to virtual things, for example. You know, we all, we all may have a virtual persona on the Internet, on social media, or in some other context. That's inadequate because Christ's taking our nature was not an appearance. So that kind of analogy is going to fail there. Um, and I think if you take any analogy, you're going to have that problem. 
So I think this is why, at least for the Catholic, the reliance is on the fact that the Church has never asserted anything other than the immutability of God, and that God is not changed by the Incarnation uh, because of the distinction of natures. The hypostatic union, which is a mystery itself, effects that. And so there it is a doctrine of the faith. And I think it's one of those things, and even if you look at the, the nature of the Trinity, any analogy you take, like St. Patrick's uh, shamrock or three phases of water where you have a serial change of the same thing, all of those fail ultimately, uh, even St. Patrick's. But they sort of get people in the door to understanding that. And so the idea of essential change and accidental change we can understand because we're very familiar with it. We get older every year. We get grayer every year. Even I am getting grayer. Uh, I have stopped getting grayer. You, okay. Well, that's good to hear. That's very. That's a very positive <laughs> Simply thing. Simply because I can't get any grayer. There you go. <laughs> so the idea of an accidental change or something that is, you know, happens that doesn't change our essential nature, we're familiar with that. But it depends on how you decide, define your essential nature. We're getting used in, especially in our culture today, to define the natures of things by multiple characteristics. You're black, you're white, you're male, you're female, you're trans, you're gay, you're straight. All of, None of that touches our essential nature. Our essential nature is that we are an embodied soul or an ensouled body. We are spirit and animal and not just animal or material like the rest of creation. That's the essential nature. And God's essential nature is that he is immutable, he is eternal, he transcends all of creation. And ultimately, any analogy that we come up with, whether it's the shamrock for the Trinity or some kind of persona, virtual persona, which uh, actually, uh, when the church was deciding what term to use, the apostasis, they were taking a a term from uh, art, from theater, because the actor would put on the you know, the happy mask, uh, the joking mask, or the sad face. And they did that. That was their persona. And so that word was chosen. But it, it obviously also fails to explain uh, the nature of the divine persons as well. So I don't know that I want to travel down that path, Andres, because anything that I could say would be wrong when for a churchman, lay or clerical, the solution is, Simply, the faith of the church which teaches it, uh, something that is beyond comprehension, beyond the reach of the senses and human intuition, and is revealed by God. And that's the, the bottom line. Thanks, Andrews. We appreciate the question. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. A couple of open lines and plenty of time for your calls at 833 833- Two eight eight three nine eight six. Michael is in Spokane, Washington, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Michael, you're on with Colin Donovan. Well, thank you both. Thanks, Colin. Mm-hmm. Um, my question is on confession. Um, what can you um, um, suggest to people about confession? Are they afraid of confession? They haven't been there in years. They don't know the format. Um, you know, it's a joyful experience, but some people just don't know what to do or what the format is. Sure, yeah. 
Well, you know, those are very practical things, and uh, there are a number of pamphlets that one can get on the Internet that, that deal with some of the practical issues. But I think the, the first step is to realize, and most priests will tell you this, I'm not a priest, although people have confided things in me over the years. Um, and so there's that element of the priest is never, it's not like he's going to be surprised by anything you say. Um, I know when, when large events are held, whether they're in Rome or our family celebrations or that, uh, whether it's the friars or assisted by local clergy, they get people who have been away for 30, 40, even 50 years in some cases. And of course, there's a lot of ground of mortal sin to cover there. Uh, they're obliged to examine their conscience as best them can, uh, as they can. Human beings are not always capable, capable of mathematical memory of everything we've ever done, a perfect exact. But we do what is possible, and that's what the Lord asks of us. So the person who is f- afraid because of the burden of the number of their sins or the, or the length of time since they last went needs to keep in mind that what is expected of them is to do what is for them possible in examining their conscience and telling the priest uh, what they have done over those decades, perhaps, and to be assured that the priest is not going to be surprised. He has one interest, and that is to say that, to be convinced of your repentance and sorrow and to say those words of absolution which set you free. And so I think those, that's the key thing for a person to remember. The books, you can see if you want to, well, what sins do I have? You can start with the Ten Commandments. What, what are those sins? Did I have I broken them? Uh, you can think of other things that have a similitude to those. There are a lot of books with, uh, set up by the commandments or little pamphlets. Um, I'm not sure off the top of, do we catalog do you know sell one uh, you know i don't know if they if they do or not i i've got two that i absolutely love that are based on the ten commandments that are very thorough uh one you can find at the fathers of mercy website right. at fathersofmercy.com and the other one is in a book by dave durand who's a, mm-hmm. a prolific catholic author and it's actually a book called time management for catholics but towards the back of that book, he has the most amazing examination of conscience that I've ever run across. Right. And you, uh, I know growing, I had a, a Queenship of Our Lady prayer book by the Daughters of St. Paul for a year that's dog-eared and well-worn now after, dare I say, 50 years, uh, that had also a wonderful one in it. So there are a lot of Catholic books, missals, and prayer books that will have, you know, a basic, and that's the way to get started in there. And I think what individual find is once they start examining, it will bring out a lot of things, and that will actually relieve their mind and their heart of the burden. Because that's what confession does for us psychologically. I always go back to what the Jewish atheist psychiatrist Carl Jung of Austria once said regarding his practice in Vienna that he had very few clients who had a regular practice of confession. He didn't believe in the supernatural character of the church and the sacraments and of reconciliation in particular, but he saw the psychological and the mental health benefit for individuals between those who occasionally had to seek his help and the the many who did not have to uh, versus his other clients who didn't have the advantage of the sacrament. 
You know, and it's a sec. You know, Tom. I think Michael asked the question: What's keeping some people from confession? And anybody who is being kept from confession, uh, I can assure you of of a couple of things. Number one, the days of harsh criticism from a priest are over. Uh, you're not going to get that in the confessional. You're going to get compassion, and you're going to get you know maybe a, a a firm talking to, depending upon your attitude towards certain sins. But you're going to get a respect a respectful. Uh, response in the confessional. And the other thing that keeps people from confession, quite frankly, is they don't want to stop doing what they're doing. But I can promise you that what God has in store for you on the other side is far better than anything you're holding on to today. Right. And if you have the humility to make that confession and you go in with a good intention and you fall, there's a confessional for you the following week as well. You just Eight. do it until you... 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of lines open for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Next up is Thomas in Nashville, Tennessee, listening on iHeartRadio. Thomas, welcome to the program. You're on with Colin Donovan. Hey, Colin. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, actually, I got a question. We're, I took my wife to the hospital, and uh, we're probably having a baby boy today, and I was curious about uh, the biblical roots and also uh, like circumcision, if this is something that is allowed by the Church, and if there's anything, any issues um, with that. Mm-hmm. Being a yeah. Um from the religious point of view, there is very early on. Of course, we even have Saint Paul who said, who who spoke of you know these as you know vain practices. Our Lord, of course, said, "Circumcise your heart, not your flesh." So early on, the Church concluded that it didn't from for as a religious practice the continuation of the Jewish rites by a Christian amounted to a repudiation of the new law of the of the of the new covenant. And so circumcision for religious uh, purposes was proscribed, uh, and the other, the, the, the feasts and seasons gradually uh, fell away in favor of a Christian calendar of, uh, of celebration of the life and passion, death, and resurrection of Christ, such as we are in the midst of, as Tom and I talked about at the top of the hour. As a practice of medicine, that has also waxed and waned. So although a Catholic or a Christian should not be circumcised in order to comply with the Old Covenant, as a medical practice, it has long been uh, rec- uh, recommended by doctors. This is becoming less and less so. And so, you know, the, the choice is yours. Uh, you're not do If you did it, it would not be for the uh, religious reasons. Uh, that would be proscribed by the Church, by Christ, by accepting the Gospel. Uh, but if the medical arguments, uh, if that's recommended and, and convincing to you, then you would be free to do that. Uh, so that's where it stands uh, with regard to the Church for the last uh, number of centuries. Does that help, Thomas? It, it does. So, I mean, as far as if, if that's the route we go, there's no no mm. sinful action in doing that. No, no, because it's not. It's it's. Well, let's just say it. They have seen it as having some medical health advantages, although I think there's a continuing debate as to really how <clears throat> true that really is. 
We're not going to solve that debate here, and doctors may argue between themselves on it, uh, but you take the advice that you want to take in that respect and follow it if you want to follow it. I will tell you a little anecdote, Thomas, that you might find humorous if not helpful. Uh, My uh, late wife Susie and I, when our oldest son was born, and, you know, we had kind of made the decision to have him circumcised, and uh, her OBGYN was a Cuban immigrant who was kind of a father figure to her. Her parents were divorced when she was very young. And when the time came, she was a little upset about the long-term psychological effect that this might have on the child. And Dr. Sherino, in his wisdom, assured her that he will have no recollection of this whatsoever. However, I can tell you firsthand that if you choose at age 17 to send your son to a foreign country to go to school and he wants to look like the other boys in that country and you have it done then and he finds himself taking a shower backwards for six weeks, he will remember that. (laughs) Obviously, somebody had that experience. Yeah, he did. He did, (laughs) So it was, uh, that that got her attention. So it, uh, it was good. So Thomas, thanks for the phone call today. We appreciate it. Next up is Phil in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, listening on the Amazon Echo. Phil, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, Colin, and um, uh, I wanted to um, uh, say hi, and I wanted to know two questions. First of all, is a priest allowed to say, peace be with you, at the beginning of Mass, at the greeting after the um, initial sign of the cross? And um, the other one is, uh, the does you know, veiling the crucifix during Passion Tide, does that violate... Um, the rubric that the you know a crucifix should be visible mm-hmm. at mass. Well, on the latter, uh, somebody in Rome obviously decided it doesn't because the same entity uh, published the norms that have both provisions in it. So, no, it does not violate it. You may there is a pro- the the minimum approach is from after the mass of the Lord's Supper till the Easter Vigil veiling. That's what the Church requires. It's permitted to do a longer period of time up to the, the, the Sunday before Palm Sunday. And so that, that doesn't violate uh, any, any rubrics, and they're obviously compatible since the Church has issued those norms and those permissions. And the longstanding practice for centuries was the two-week veiling, um, and it's been shortened to be basically the latter, the triduum, the last three days after the Mass of the Lord's Supper. But you may do it, a parish may do it longer. And, and many times there, even in those situations, there will be a crucifix lying flat on the altar that may be not visible to the parishioners. There might be, but I mean, that's not oblig- obligatory. Uh, <clears throat> as far as I'm aware, it's that w- one is there. I think in most seasons of the year, we probably need a reminder of what's taking place there. During Holy Week, when the Gospels and all the prayers are so starkly reminding of that, uh, that reminder is in the liturgy, is the liturgy itself, and I think uh, that that's sufficient. But in any case, it's according to the norms. So. And uh, after the initial sign of the cross, can the priest say, peace be with you? I would have to check the missile, whether that is one of the options, because it's not... I mean, it is a greeting. It was a tree, like shalom being the greeting of the, of the uh, in Hebrew of the Jewish people, uh, uh, pax in in uh, Latin, uh, peace in English. 
Uh, so I'd have to check it, but by itself, I don't see anything wrong with that unless it violates the rubrics. EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. Next up is John right here in Coleman, Alabama, listening on Guadalupe Radio. John, welcome to the program. You're on with Colin. Thank you very much. What a pleasure and honor. Um, My question is about the use of flowers during Lent as well as the use of the organ and bells during Lent or during especially uh, Holy Week. I, mm-hmm. I understand the organ and bells, uh, uh, I think, uh, have been traditionally kind of um, not, uh, not uh, wrong or not played. Right, that, that's true. Um, now, we have some feast days when the priest will wear white, and, and we had just a solemnity recently of the uh, uh, incarnation of the uh, March 25th. So on those days, basically all bets like that are off. You see flowers, you hear the organ, you, uh, you hear um, you, um, ringing of bells, um, those kinds of Gloria. things. The Gloria. Yeah, so th- that would be, those would be exceptional periods. Um, now, very often the people need some musical underpinnings for the intoning of, say, if you were singing the Kyrie or that. So that kind of accompaniment, as far as I know, is is not proscribed. Um, you know, so that's, when you get down to the last days, then what you have at the end of Holy Week, of course, is instead of the bells, you have the, the wood blocks, the knockers that, that make that, you know, the wood, wood block sound uh, instead of the bells. Um, I think the thing is not to overdo it with the bells during, <laughs> uh, during Lent, certainly not with flowers are not permitted. Um, so many things are, are done a little bit more penitentially. Next stop for us is Columbus, Ohio. Jenny is a first-time caller listening on St. Gabriel Radio. Jenny, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I was wondering about praying to loved ones that have passed and how they can hear us. Like, I know when we pray to God, He knows what's in our mind and our heart. But when you pray to a loved one that's passed um, and you're saying prayer in your head, like, how can they hear you and how do they know what you're praying for? Sure. Well, the the two there is a little bit equivocal because you're not there is no channel by which you can pray directly to the dead uh, we're proscribed we're forbidden to pray to the dead in the other place um or to call them up to divinize them uh, we have the story of of uh, Saul you trying to get to Samuel in order to get some uh, you know some cl- some clarification on what he was to do uh, we, we can't do that. Uh, that would give us a certain moral norm with regard to our prayers. If we, if, if our judgment and our sense of the matter is that a person is in hell, we would not pray for them to them, because if we think they're in hell, what do we think we're doing praying to them? But we all have good family members and and friends and relatives and others who go, and so privately, yes. You know, we can direct our thoughts and prayers to them, um, and, you know, and 
that's totally permitted. How they get there, however, is the same way, really, in which uh, we would talk to the saints or the angels, and that is in God. Uh, God is the only one who can convey to those individuals uh, what we are, our thoughts and our prayers regarding them. Uh, as likewise, what is going on in the world with respect to us. And we assume that they are given such knowledge as God wills it, and therefore that it's not vain to, you know, to seek their prayers on our behalf. You know, when Mother Teresa died, or John Paul II, or Padre Pio, who we presumed to be a saint while they were alive, then people presumed to ask their prayer, uh, assistance after death. And so we can assume then that God makes that uh, known to them uh, in the circumstances of our life and the things which they need to know. Not everything. It's all within his will. But he is the channel, the means by which we can do that. And therefore, we can be assured that they will not be misdirected in some you know, evil way. How's that, Jenny? Okay, that's good. Thank right. you. Thank you for the phone call. We appreciate it. That frees up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next up is Walter in Graham, Washington, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Walter, you're on with Colin Donovan. Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, yeah, I was wondering, I wanted to ask a question about uh, the Virgin Mary uh, making a statement at Fatima that mm -hmm. um, uh, she said that um, when you see a strange light in the sky, the earth is about to be punished. And uh, I've been wondering because I like pray the rosary every day, and I've been seeing UFOs, that, well, actually just strange lights in the sky that hover over my house and whatnot, and uh, and stop. And I just wonder what the significance of what she was trying to say was. I mean, yeah. well, it would it wouldn't be directed to any particular individual. Um, it was directed to to the church, to told to the children, directed to the church and to the world. And we have the we have the historical occasion of that. It was in January of 1938. Uh, Hitler was on the verge of taking. Uh, grabbing Czechoslovakia, and uh, be, what happened was in one of the nights there, there was a what one superficially would call an aurora borealis that was seen down to the Mediterranean, and I think uh, later that night, and certainly in parts of North America as well, I believe. And so it was not char characteristic of an aurora. If you've seen the beautiful northern light pictures, um, I mean, you can see them live online if you put in, uh, you know, live webcam Aurora in YouTube or something like that. You can get, and, and it's like a, a curtain of color that waves across the sky because it's the electrons following the magnetic line of the, of the Earth from the pole to pole. And so it's from, from the apex of the heavens down to the, towards the ground. This was like a round, uh, uh, almost like an eye, a red-colored uh, red eye in the sky and surrounded by other light uh, and had some other characteristics to it. And, a Nor and it occurred in January of 1938. And in March of 1938, historians would say World War II began. Uh, not the s severe fighting part, which came with the uh, invasion of Poland the following year, 
but the marker which said basically his campaign, Hitler's campaign to take over Europe, was beginning with the occupation of Czechoslovakia. Then there would, be, of course, be the vote in Austria and all these other things. So that light presaged World War II. Now, what was its meaning? Immediately, scientists, there was one particular Norwegian scientist who was an expert on the auroras. He didn't understand it, and he tried to uh, see in what way this corresponded to any natural phenomena that he was aware of because of this round, this ball-like pattern. And he compared it to something called ball lightning, which is a known natural phenomena, where instead of going from the poles to da- down to the lower latitudes, uh, it's usually, uh, I think, a lo- fairly local phenomena, uh, you basically see the, the electrons are going around in ionized air in a, in a ball pattern. So that was the closest he could come, but he had never seen that in an aurora borealis. That's where the issue more or less remained. This was known throughout Europe that this was a strange light. Sister Lucia confirmed that this was the light which God had, uh, which Our Lady had noted. And as a consequence of that, very quickly in order, we saw the events of World War II occur. What then did the light mean? And we really didn't know, I think, until the 80s or 90s, what possibly it meant exactly, other than light, war, persecution of the church. That was a pretty straightforward statement by Our Lady. But John Hafford, who was the head of the, of, of the worldwide Apostolate of Fatima, uh, also known as the Blue Army, he decided to seek an answer to this. And he took the information he had, to a physicist at uh, Oak Ridge Laboratories in Tennessee, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, which is a government uh, laboratory which studies the, uh, the physics of nuclear weapons and other areas in order to understand the physics of nuclear weapons. And this particular guy, uh, whose name was Rand McNally, or maybe his first name was different, but his last name was, Mc- I think it was Rand McNally III, no relationship to the, uh, to the cartographer, um, this, uh, he had been specifically studying ball lightning. And the reason was because his task was to investigate the phenomena of America's high altitude H-bomb tests in the South Pacific, especially the Teak experiments of the late 1950s, when over, uh, over, uh, I guess, Bikini Atoll, where all of those things took place at higher, al- at high altitude than at the surface, clearly, Uh, We exploded the hydrogen bomb in order to see what the effects would be. And when that was done, they had the photography, they had the other uh, information that was provided at the time, uh, was gathered at the time by the U.S. government and, as I'll explain, also others. And they were looking at it. And he had connected this ball uh, ball lightning with that phenomena because of a similarity of of external appearance. The other element of this was the effects of what happened at that time. It was visible from Honolulu and the Hawaiian Islands with an appearance very similar to what was seen in 1938. 
And also in Honolulu, there was an outage of electricity for some period of time. Bikini, it occurred for eight hours at Honolulu. I believe it was a, a lesser amount of time. There was an interruption. Now, the U.S. struggled to understand that. Russia did its own tests, and when they got to an understanding of it in 1962, what did they do? They went and they signed the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. I guess so they figured they were keeping this information. It seems to be a clear sign of what would happen if there's an electromagnetic pulse because that's what Honolulu experienced. That was what was experienced in Kazakhstan in the 1960s when uh, Russia did its own tests uh, above uh, Kazakhstan. So there is clearly a connection in that phenomena with the period of nuclear warfare that would occur as the popes have warned, that John Paul did, Pope Francis did recently in the connection with Ukraine, this is the greatest threat to humanity by which humanity doesn't get exterminated by an asteroid or a comet or anything else, but we basically do it to ourselves. This is the threat which we have today. We see it in bioethics, where they would want to change human nature, when they want to manipulate human nature, we see it in the, in the lack of comity among the nations, such as we see over the, of the invasion of Ukraine. All of these things come together and show that what occurred at Fatima in 1917, what the great light of 1938 ward regarding the nuclear era, which certainly began with World War II, and the U.S.'s own use of nuclear weapons could possibly someday, if not prevented, exterminate the greater part of the human race. We are our own worst enemy, and we haven't let your, uh, um, learn this lesson. Now, I find that, since we're on this topic, there is a great deal of coincidence, even of those who feel that well, John Paul in consecrating Russia didn't do properly. I believe he did because he did what Our Lady wanted us to do, what Our Lord did in sending her to Fatima. He showed that consecration to the Immaculate Heart is the way to appeal to God through her for the needs of, the, of humanity, for the needs of the church, for the needs of the individual. It is the means by which we see in our day the role which Our Lady plays in history. We see it clearly through the means of, of, of consecration. But I think the unanimity that people have now, for the most part, <laughs> some exceptions uh, we heard recently on Open Line, uh, that certainly in today's content, Pope Francis has done in an even more perfect fashion in the present context, what was called for, doesn't erase what happened after the 84 consecration, but it certainly ought to tell us the danger in which we are in and the importance of him having done that on March 25th and to trust in God. Uh, so, yes, that great light had this immense meaning of what history, sort of age of history we are in, we are in the age of Our Lady, in which to be she is to be elevated to her uh, the acceptance in the Church and beyond it of of her role in salvation history, and where she is shown to be 
the intercessor for the human race, particularly through acts of consecration. Uh, and so the story of 1917 continues. I think we are still in that era that that great light warned about. Uh, we had our first step out of it with John Paul II. Uh, let's hope that we don't need a, a, a second step out in our own day by the preemption of any kind of a nuclear war. But I think many people think we do, and I think the Pope felt it, and I think he did that rightly, and, and uh, so we, we hope for the great effect from that. Be sure to check out Mass Appeal Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Colleen Kelly Mass takes your calls and offers two hours of free, friendly advice from a Catholic perspective. That's Mass Appeal Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Jennifer's watching on YouTube, and she says, How many intentions can there be for one Mass being said? Is the priest the one who gives the intention, or do we all bring our own, too? Well, there's the stipend and intention, and that's one that where, where the priest accepts a stipend for the Mass, and so the Mass is, is ostensibly then offered uh, for that intention. The priest has his private intentions. We bring our private intentions because it's the Mass, it's the sacrifice of Calvary. Uh, if it's, it's an infinite in value, and there's no limit to that. But the priest can't accept more than one stipend for the Mass, and so for that principal intention, uh, there is only the one which the donor gives, uh, but he can bring his own private intentions, obviously, as can we, and we should. Every Mass we should, uh, we should unite to uh, the sacrifice of our Lord. At the offertory is commonly thought where we give our lives over and we, we invite him. It's when we do the prayers of the faithful, obviously, uh, and that's the time to bring our intention to him, whether we've spoken them, of them to the priest and given him a stipend or not unanimity sort of a kind of unanimity and everybody should be embracing all of those intentions in their prayers that's two straight questions with unanimity in the answer i can check that one off my list of words for the day i guess <laughs> there you go i think that uh kieran asked you to work that into the show and you've accomplished your task <laughs> I will let him know. <laughs> <laughs> On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it again on Monday with Father John Tregilio. Have a terrific Palm Sunday and enter into Holy Week strong. Go to confession if you need to. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it Monday. Until then, God bless.